Past, present, future, live. In-depth conversations and exclusive live performances featuring some of the most dynamic artists from the world of contemporary music. From Osiris Media, this is Past, Present, Future Live. I'm your host, RJB. Today's guest is songwriter and musician Maggie Rose. Over a decade in Nashville, Maggie has amassed a growing fan base with her powerful voice on stage, in the studio, and with her songwriting that challenges the sexist politics of country radio. For her 2018 album, Change the Whole Thing, Maggie took control of her sound, assembling a band of her musical friends to make a powerful record that captures the soulful energy of her live performances. The album is both an achievement and the start of a new chapter for Maggie as she continues to reach new heights as a writer, singer, and band leader. After the interview, you'll hear Maggie performing her original song, Help Myself, Shade by Fish, and People Get Ready by Curtis Mayfield. You'll find a special playlist with all the music we discuss in this episode in the show notes. And one last thing, if you're enjoying the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy the show. All right, I'm here with Maggie Rose. Maggie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Um, we're really excited to get to talk to you. We're going to start all the way from the beginning from a musical perspective. What's your earliest musical memory? My earliest musical memory is performing on the fireplace mantle at my parents' house for my grandparents and their dinner party guests and realizing that I had the power to make a room full of adults really happy as a toddler, two or three years old. And yeah, thank God for Disney and all the music that I was exposed to with that and just being able to sing along and transform the mood that was in the room. Singing in church a lot, Catholic church. I, I'm a prep school Catholic girl, so not necessarily the starting point that you would expect given <laughs> where I've ended up now today. Were your parents musical? Like, was there a lot of music being played around your house? There was always music being played around the house, and it was good music. The Beatles, Sinatra, my mom loved Linda Ronstadt, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and we loved Michael Jackson, uh, Stones, just a lot of quality music. But no musical talent, no offense to my family to speak of, but I always had a really supportive community uh, around me and a home life where I could sing constantly. The only problem was singing during my homework. My mom would tell me that that's probably why my math grades weren't so great. It was because I couldn't stop singing. But I have a lot of friends here in Nashville who didn't have that support necessarily. And I think that as much as I wish I had that idyllic family band scenario where I had a guitar placed in my hands before I could walk, I had the benefit of the support and enthusiasm of my sisters and my parents. You grew up in Potomac, Maryland, outside of D.C., and we'll talk about your move to Nashville and all the awesome music you've made. But how do you feel like you're one of those kids who just loved music from an early age without any explanation? It sort of sounds like that, like you just kind yes. of were attracted to it. It feels like a vocation. It kind of made me feel like a bit of a weirdo for most of my life. You know, my dad would tell me how sensitive I was in an affectionate way, but there's this wonderment and sensitivity and introspection that was always there that I felt 
I could really satisfy with music from an early age and by singing and the connectivity that music brought to a room or a, a venue where I got to sing was always something really special and uh, addictive to me. So you're growing up in Maryland, church music, Disney. Was there a first album or, or something when you were that you remember like really grabbing you from popular music or, or outside of the stuff that your parents kind of brought to you? Yes. Jagged Little Pill. Uh, and I was really young. I mean, now that I'm an adult, I realized that that subject matter mostly was way over my head. But even Alanis was a 19-year-old when she made that. That's how old I was when I moved to Nashville. So in retrospect, I feel like that's kind of an important piece of work. And Joan Osborne was also coming about at the same time. And these were gutsy women who knew how to write a song and weren't afraid to write really honestly. So it was cool to be exposed to that. It was the era of women in pop music when I was at the most impressionable age. I loved Aretha Franklin, too, who was more of like a standard that I'd hear a lot. But we had all the country queens coming about around that time, too, like Shania and the Dixie Chicks and Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, these powerhouse vocalists. So that was mainstream popular music. I think that's kind of an awesome thing that I got to witness growing up, that just being the norm. And it's so strange how things have sort of devolved, it seems to me, since that time. Well, I want to follow up on that, but I want to go back to Jagged Little Pill. What was it about that 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 caught your attention at, at that age? The rawness of her performance, the messiness of it all, because up until that point, I revered the perfect, in quotations, performance. What was technically a perfect vocalist was what I felt like I was always aspiring to be. And there was something in her presentation that was so riveting to me at a young age where I was like, well, I really like that. And that's the antithesis of what I was striving to be. That kind of set me on a little different path or at least opened my mind to how you can be as full of expression as Alanis was, but not necessarily being a perfect singer by any means. So when you say it's devolved since then, what do you mean? I mean, in the representation of female voices, I think that you hear on the radio and kind of jumping all over the place chronologically. But that was one of the things that I think pointed me to exploring my voice further beyond country music so many years ago was the fact that I love country music, but I don't necessarily love the politics of Music Row in Nashville. And country music to me is defined so far beyond what you're hearing on country radio, which is just a tiny, tiny part of the whole breadth of what there is to be heard and offered. I feel like you're one of the many artists helping to change that representation. Is that how you feel? Absolutely. I think that I'm having a, an awakening to everything that's out there. In the last five years, it's been the most alive I've felt. I feel none of that anxiety that I felt before about not having that sense of belonging to a certain genre or community as much as I love aspects of it, never feeling fully embraced. And in this community, I feel that. I think every artist who's worth their salt should kind of feel like a fraud occasionally. We should all be trying to beat out what our last work was, but I don't feel that in the sense that I don't feel welcomed. I feel like I can take chances and 
my contributions are valid and I don't need to be so didactic about this is where I belong and explaining it to people. You just let the music speak for itself. And it's just a much easier way to exist and be creative. I've talked to another guest who was brought up Catholic, who ended up being in a, in a punk band and, you know, lots of other bands. Did you feel a sense of rebellion beyond what every sort of teenager does based on your upbringing? Yes, absolutely. How did that show up for you? A lot of ways that are hard to look at right now in retrospect. Um, and there's there's this period of my career that I can now identify as a very conflicted time where you know, I, I wanted to lash out and do things my own way and be completely independent and make my own decisions creatively. But I also wanted to appease the industry. I had a label constructed around me, essentially, at a very young age. I was independent, but I had a financier. And I felt the pressure of needing to release a song because you live and die by the country single that was going to be able to sustain this label that was structured around me. And I had 18 people who were on this payroll that I needed to do right by. So then all of a sudden you're having this push and pull of, okay, what do I need to do to play the game and make the right business choice and also honor what it is that I want to say and look back on this and and know that it was timeless music that I can always stand by. And that was a battle for a while until I just cut the tether from the label, from the investor, from everybody. And it was the scariest moment and the most exciting moment all at once. Before you moved to Nashville, you grew up obviously in Maryland. What what happened that showed you that you could do this for a living? Was it something, how old were you? What happened when you kind of realized like, oh, I could, I can actually do this? Well, that's a constant question, I think every day, but it was the validation of writing original music and performing it with the B Street Band, which is the longest running Bruce Springsteen tribute band, still the hardest working band I know and that I've ever worked with. They're still gigging today. But the investor that I mentioned earlier, who's still one of my biggest supporters and friends, introduced me to this band because he was doing a fundraiser annually and had Jersey ties, fell in love with them, and then kind of plugged me into that scene And up until then, I had no experience really singing secular music with a band and conducting them. And I was wearing sundresses and we were at Jersey Shore bars and I was a high schooler. So there was a lot that I was still trying to figure out. But at least I had this platform that I had never had before where I was singing to people who were coming to the bar on Friday afternoon, underage, I was, uh, to entertain them and help them escape and the power of music was just beginning to unlock to me because of that experience. And I think after struggling with that discomfort of being on stage and not just being a singer, but now having thoughts and ideas that I was presenting as my own was the catalyst that made me be like, okay, I'm, I'm a performer. And now the, the demand of that is so much more than what I understood it to be before. And so you're in high school, were you just like sitting in class all day, just waiting for Friday to come so you could go back (laughs) to the Jersey Shore and play more gigs? Is that, that's what I envisioned in my head. I think there was part of that there. It was not until I was in college, I think, that I really realized that I could not live these double lives anymore. The archdiocese, good prep school girl, and I 
still cared about all the BS that you care about in high school and you think is so paramount to your life. And now it hardly seems significant. So I had to figure out how committed I was going to be to my calling. And when I dropped out of Clemson, I think was the big line in the sand for me. When did you drop out of college and what did you do? What was the decision that you made from there? I remember gathering all my sorority sisters on the sorority hall. And this is a whole different world to the Kappas at Clemson and just saying, I'm going to Nashville. That whole move was facilitated by a meeting that I had with Tommy Matola, who was the guy at Sony for so many years. He introduced me to the first producer I was going to work with. So I had some groundwork laid down because you know, my parents are supportive and awesome and totally behind me. But there's this level of conservatism that I had to kind of prepare everyone <laughs> around me for this big decision that I was making. I was about to begin my second semester of sophomore year and decided that I had to move to Nashville. I was already studying music and had all this groundwork laid down. And months later, I was recording my first demos with James Stroud, who's an award-winning producer in the country world. What was it like walking into a meeting with Tommy Matola at that age? I was actually just just turned 18. I had these songs that I had written and had been playing with the B Street Band. Through my investor, Tom Natelli, he knew a guy who knew Tommy from some party in Aspen that they had met. So a world that I didn't live in. But he was able to get Tommy's contacts and get these demos to Tommy unsolicited. But I guess with the friend's uh, encouragement, Tommy decided to actually listen to these demos. And he heard potential in them and invited me to come perform for him at his office in Manhattan. And I remember walking in and it probably lasted about 10 minutes. But after that, he said, Okay, I'm going to introduce you to these people, and these are the people you're going to be writing songs with. And he had all this history with his Dixie Chicks days at Sony. So I had a pretty good Rolodex of people already without having done much of the legwork because of Tommy. So even though he admittedly was not really involved in my career and still isn't, the initial connections that he helped me make made my trajectory, for better or worse, pretty fast and pretty steep. And maybe that was a time that I needed to not be moving so fast and actually deciding which direction I wanted to be pointed in. It sounds like moving to Nashville was the thing that you've been working toward for a long time. What was that like? It was confusing and overwhelming and lonely and unbelievable. I I think anyone who would look from the outside at that experience and be like, wow, she's writing with these amazing artists and writers and she's in the studio with Brent Mason and James Stroud and all these institution names of like session players that Nashville has to offer. But it was moving so fast for me that I didn't get to have the enjoyment of having all the intention behind it that I'm now enjoying today. I attribute that to a myriad of reasons, my age, all the assets that I was given to work with, and also the politeness that I had been taught and and wanting to be someone who appeases others. 
I think that that was the perfect storm that kind of got me on this path that I eventually had to walk back quite a bit. So what was the balance between that material that you brought to those first recording sessions versus everyone else who was involved? For Cut to Impress in 2013, it was a Frankenstein album is what I call it. We were taking works that we had created at wildly different times and then had to eventually just composite all of that together for this first record. And even with those obstacles, I feel still very proud of the chances that we took on that album and how I was able to stay within the guidelines of what was going to be acceptable at commercial country radio, but also still kind of push the boundaries a little bit. So even that early on in my career, I was looking for something beyond what I was getting at country radio. Can you tell us about like what it's like going into a recording studio at that age with these people who are like, you know, legendary studio session musicians, like, and saying like, here's my song. Can you play it? I think ignorance is bliss in that, (laughs) in that case, for sure. Because if I had known everyone's discography and what they had played on intimately, then I think I would have been totally psyched out. And I already was plenty psyched out. Like, don't get me wrong. I wasn't going in there being like, this is the best song you've ever heard. And, you know, it was intimidating to say the least, but I also felt like, you know, there's a lot of artists who are 19 and 20 and know exactly what they want to say. I just wasn't there yet. So I had the raw talent. I, I knew I could always sing. I knew I had that, that empathy to write a good song, but I didn't have the life experience yet to make the music that I wanted to make at that time. And what, what did you, how did you feel once it was done and released in 2013, which it was a big success and you, you kind of broke out, you know, with that album. How did you feel when it was released and out in the world? I felt really proud of the body of work. I thought it was a dynamic record and the variety of songs that we were offering was impressive to me at that time, given the fact that my catalog as a writer really wasn't as big as like what I now know my catalog is and how often I write compared to that time. We weren't choosing from as many songs as I have from any other future project. The body of work was varietal enough, but I was insatiable. There, there was so much more to be said. And I had been sitting on some of those songs for so many years at that point, which most first albums are a culmination of your life's work to that point. But I felt like I was really ready to move on to what was really topical. And I was ready to let these songs belong to everybody else and move forward. So between your first and second albums, what were you doing? Were you touring while writing a bunch of new material? I feel like those were a blur of several years where I was constantly on radio tour, which is a soul-sucking activity for any artist out there who hasn't been on one. I have friends at Country Radio that I still keep in touch with who are total music snobs, and even they will admit that they kind of have to recalibrate their musical opinions to do the job that they're doing because there's so much out there and you have to focus on one song like for maybe 50 weeks at a time your entire worth as an artist seems like it's all wrapped up into the performance of this single that was probably my toughest time artistically to really feel connected to what I was doing and it was kind of depressing at times because you wanted to explore other facets of your artistry, but you were so desperate at 
the thought of this single not working that you wouldn't get to get an opportunity to even explore other music and pursue other singles. In in that time, were people looking at you as a country artist? Like, could, did people see the all the other influences from soul and pop and and other stuff that was in there, or, or were you just like being pushed into this single category? I think there were, of course, people who pay close attention and who knew that there was more there. But for the most part, I felt like I was just another artist in this country circuit. And I have a lot of my female counterparts who are country artists today who still feel like there's so much more that remains to be seen about who they are. And it's frustrating. I did not feel known. I just now feel like I'm becoming known. That's why I love, I was listening to your other podcast with Eric Krasno, and he was talking about that same feeling of, you know, he was the guy who collaborated with some hip hop artists and then also was in the jam scene. And people were just kind of like, oh, he's still here. But like now they're becoming to understand the intricacies of who he is and how multifaceted he is. And a lot of that has to do with just me finally being able to be prolific now and not saying, here's one song for you to focus on for an entire year, but here's this project and here's this collaboration. And the common denominator in all of these different projects that I'm a part of is me. And I think that every artist should be able to see their power in that net that they can cast and it can be whatever you want it to be. And people are more forgiving of that. So the album changed the whole thing that came out in 2018 made your journey so far come full circle. Was there a moment when you realized that you could change the whole thing? Absolutely. The label I was with that I released cut to impress with, they dissolved my investor understandably realized that this was not a business plan that made sense for him or anyone or myself it was the collapse of everything around me. And I decided that I was going to move out of the nicer apartment that I was in. And I moved into this little shoebox of a place a couple blocks away. And I was literally like sleeping in my closet. Like I had container store build a closet so that I could hold all the things that was once in my bigger apartment there. And I found a publishing deal with this hit country songwriter, Dallas Davidson. Thank God I met him because that's how I met my husband. And I decided that even in the face of having the landscape be completely different than it had ever looked for me, I still want to make music. I still want to write music. I got a high on the self-sufficiency that I was finally made aware of. I just didn't really know that life would go on if it was really just left all up to me. And I still, of course, had the emotional support of so many people, including the people that I was working with before. It's just that it was kind of a, a non-starter. And, and this was the best way to make something that mattered to me was just fully breaking it all down. So I lived in the shoebox for a little bit and wrote some songs. It's fascinating to me. I feel like almost every musician I talk to, there's this point where it's like all the things that I have been working to get or that I thought I wanted, I had. And then I realized that that wasn't actually what I wanted at all. And it's so amazing how common that is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was that scary? Like when you were moving to a small apartment and, and the future was like a little bit more uncertain or was it, was it, it sounds like it was liberating, but was it also scary? It was terrifying. It was so scary. And I remember I had moved out of this apartment and I don't want to call my parents and ask them for money. And you know, full disclosure, I never had that burden that so many artists have where it's like, I don't know when I'm going to eat again, but I 
had no money. And that same day, and I think this is just a sign that I was meant to do it. I got this backlog check of every performance royalty I'd ever been owed in my mailbox the day that I was supposed to move to this apartment. I think that was a kick in the ass to say like, okay, stop crying. This is going to be just a little tough for a moment. But then I got to really start digging and my husband, Austin, he's such a huge music fan that in so many ways, that dynamic moment in my life and meeting him and being exposed to like this whole world of music. He's the reason I went to my first fish show. We were listening to widespread panic. It's, my musical education became so profound in those years that I, I decided to keep going in the face of everything falling apart. What year was that? It was six years ago on May 5th is when I met him. And we just had our four-year wedding anniversary. Cool. Happy anniversary. Yeah, it was fun. We've had a really good time. <laughs> Best years of my life. So you're being exposed to a bunch of more music and feeling sort of freed from kind of this machine that you were put into when did you decide to start working on this album that came out in 2018? So I had been writing so much when I talked to you before about how small my catalog was when we put together Cut to Impress versus Change the Whole Thing. That's really a result of those two years where I just was in the trenches trying to figure out like who I even was or what my writing style was. Austin had kind of set me aside and been like, it's it's time to make some more music. We had nothing to lose. I had still in that little window shopped to big labels on Music Row around town. Still like, okay, I can make a country record, but maybe I'll do it more like Ashley Monroe or like Tyler Childers. And that's just not going to happen on Music Row's labels. So they didn't get it. They didn't get what I was doing. And the disparity at country radio is becoming more and more gross. It just is undeniable that they don't play women on that format. And we decided we had nothing to lose. I was working with Narvel Blackstock at Starstruck, who I'm still working with and who is so integral to like everything that I've been able to do since then because he has these beautiful studios. And I had this band that's my family and all these people that I had met over the years because I had been in Nashville for so long at this point that I could assemble a studio band from contacts in my phone who were going to kill it for me. And I decided to almost just take it as a 45. Let's do a 45 completely live, no overdubs, no auto tune and just see how it goes. And let's document the whole thing and make a cool project and put it out there and see what people think. And that day we recorded Just Getting By, Pull You Through and Smooth which are three pretty different songs that ended up being important songs for the project. And we said, okay, this is how we have to do the rest of the LP. It was just so apparent to everybody that we had done something kind of magical. And it was the day that got the ball rolling for me where I just kind of got back on the horse and learned a lot about who I was as a vocalist too, because I had always done it the standard Nashville way, record five takes and then comp together like the most perfect take. And I heard myself from the recordings that day in a way that I'd never heard myself before. And 
the camaraderie of everybody in the room. We're all looking at each other and the confidence in each other's abilities and the intimacy of making music that way was something I wanted more of. So we just made an album from there. The documentary um, that, that came out that um, chronicles it, as you mentioned, is really cool. And I really, I think it's captured pretty well, the things you describe in the, in the documentary. Um, and you can- Thanks for watching. Yeah, yeah. It's really, I think it's, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. I think um, one thing that I noticed early in the documentary, you said something like, I think maybe you said that someone came up to you and said that your live experience was so much different than what they heard recorded. And I also, I don't want to draw too many conclusions, but it seems like you were seeing more live music also. Like, was that a big part of the way you put this together? You're spot on. Yeah, it was a well-intentioned fan who had been with us for a while and they were complimenting the live show. They, they don't miss these shows. They're the kind of people that will drive a couple hours, they've become like our family. But they're like, hey, we love your recordings. We listen to everything, but there's just something that we can't get elsewhere than these live shows. And I was going out, living in Nashville, and sort of being in that creative time. I was going out to see music several times a week. And there's power in that. There's this urgency that you can only get from that. This is your chance. This is your moment to convey to the people watching what you feel. And... I had the confidence to know that I could do something live that I maybe couldn't have done years before and that it was going to be compelling. And it made me make decisions differently in the studio, knowing that this is your moment. Don't screw it up for everybody else who's now going to have to start over. And we just felt this, this electricity in the room because of that. That was invaluable. I heard you, I think, also in the documentary mention like the need for patience and impatience, which I think is really interesting as like a live music fan. The the coolest live music I hear is when you can tell that there's space in the songs and in the playing and you can you can feel the patience of the musicians, but you also need to like keep the urgency and energy high. Um, how do you approach that in your either the recording this album or even when you play live? I think that it's about the people in the room. Oftentimes, that's both the audience and the people you're playing music with on stage. Having respect for everybody's time, including your own, and having patience with yourself and your abilities. I think that's something that I learned a lot about. Some of my favorite moments on the record are things that maybe on previous projects I would have even manicured or tried to fix. And now to me, that's just life. That's, that's the beauty of what we got in the room. So I think that kind of answers your question, but it, there's always a dance between that. And and when do you step away from a project? How much are you going to work it in post-production and polish it up before it becomes something else than what you created in the room? It's that, that fine line of knowing what none of us can really actually know and saying, okay, this is yours now. Yeah, confidence and belief in yourself, I think, is seems like that's one of the main... I mean, you have to have that to be able to you know, take risks like that too. Absolutely. And that was a big theme in my life at that time too. So in the documentary, you see all these musicians that came together and, and several people mentioned that it had the feel of like a family reunion. Can you just tell people who haven't um, seen it and, and who maybe haven't listened to change the whole thing? Who are some of the people on there and how did they all come to be your, uh, your bandmates or at least help you put that record together? Absolutely. Well, 
during that time, I had started to collaborate with uh, Them Vibes, which is comprised of Larry Florman, Alex Dad, Kyle Lewis, and Sarah Tomek, who had already been my drummer for nine years at that point. In fact, she was living in Asbury Park, and I met her through B Street Band when I was underage at the Stone Pony and was like, I'm going to have you be my drummer someday. And then several years later, she was willing to move to Nashville to primarily play for me. Now she, you know, she's played with Manolo Garcia and Steven Tyler, and she does all sorts of session work. And she's still with me. She even does my tour managing, which is way below her pay grade. But her husband is the front man of them vibes. So their attitude and their approach to funk music and just jamming and being a band and having that collaborative spirit really rubbed off on me. So they're all part of that band. Then we have Kyle Whalem, who was my bass player, unbelievably so, for a couple years before he was stolen by Kelly Clarkson. And now he lives in LA and is on her show every day whenever life resumes to normal. But even now I have this project that I'm working on in quarantine where we're all recording our parts in isolation. And I send it to Kyle Whalem and He's in LA and he sends it back. So we still have this thing where we work together. And um, people from Loving Mary Band, uh, I got as my BGV singers, some like, so Rebecca Lynn Howard, who's amazing, Susie McNeil. Gosh, we had Bobby Holland producing it and he's just legendary, but so sweet and easy to work with and such a friend that I felt so safe in the space with him making essentially in a live record. You need to have someone that you can be really vulnerable with. And Bobby's so musical and creative, but also just like the sweetest human being. So we did that. I know I'm forgetting people. Vanessa Campania, who's a co-writer of mine, we realized in all these sessions where we were writing music together, how well we sung together. So I just invited her to be part of the record. Jason Gromlich, who was in my band for several years, he now plays with Brothers Osborne. He came in and played on some of the tracks. And it was just a hodgepodge of people that I had worked with over the years that I love and I knew would bring the right spirit to this project. And it was so much fun. Like, I, I, I was almost, I had like a postpartum feeling moving on from Change the Whole Thing to the record that we just finished from Fame because it was just like this warm bath of music and love and comfort. And I felt like it was my, my year of enlightenment, honestly, because of these people. Could this have happened anywhere else other than Nashville? I would like to say yes, but I attribute so much of what I've done to the community that I'm in. We live in East Nashville, which a lot of people call like the little Laurel Canyon today of like all these amazing creative people who are supportive of each other because everyone's so different. We're all bringing something different to the table. Like I did this taping with Marcus King over the last several days, given the quarantine that we're all under, he's putting this festival together. And it was just this lineup of all these people who live in the community showing up to sing this song or play on this song. And everyone was just supportive of one another. And that's the feeling I get from living here. Of course, there's going to be competition within the industry, but I feel like it's such a symbiotic thing. I certainly can't do what I do without these people. So you just debuted a new single called Help Myself during a concert that was live streamed on nugs.net while everyone's stuck at home. And it's a uh, I, it's interesting because the song, was it written for this time or was it just a good thing to put out during this time? 
It was not written for this time. I think obviously it's just as relevant, if not more, than it was when I wrote it. But this was written before we even went down to Fame Studios to record my forthcoming album. And it was a lot about just what you see. Like we're bombarded with these messages on social media. Like this is the trick you need to apply to change your life. And like here's some advice that, that you didn't ask for. And then no one's really even applying it to their own lives. And there's comedy in that to me. So it's a little bit of a sarcastic tune. And I think it's also revealing of me not really knowing what the hell I'm doing and trying to make the listener feel less alone if they feel like they're totally lost too. Like we're all just figuring it out together. And I felt I was going to release another song from this project because of course I had all sorts of plans for how this release was going to look before COVID hit. But I pivoted to this song because I think there's some levity in it and it's high energy, relatable. There's so much imagery that I think people can latch onto given what's going on right now. You had this crossover with sort of the the broader music community outside of Nashville through Nugs.net. I feel like you're you're really crossing over into a lot of different genres. Um, how do you feel about that, like the label of genres and and how they're melding together or not melding together? Like how do you how do you view your music in the context of all these different musical genres? I love it. I love that there are subgenres emerging. I have never felt more accepted or that I belong more. And it's funny that it took a community that is so diverse to make me feel like I belong because I belong to all these little kind of subgenres under this umbrella. Uh, it's not confusing to me. It's not daunting to me. In fact, what's daunting to me is someone telling me I can't do something or I can't pursue a collaboration because that sucks. I think that that's how you discover new things about yourself and your artistry and how you create new things. And I think that discovery is really in the hands of the consumer, which is how it should be. And I never really released music with that approach. It was always targeted to this, we'll all name it. It was targeted to country radio's little tiny playlist of songs that they were going to agree to play. And now I can collaborate with the Marcus King band, or I can do some projects with Manny Fresh, which sounds really random to some people, but I'm super excited about it. So you have a, a forthcoming album that you mentioned you recorded at Fame Studios. What was it like going to Muscle Shoals and recording there? Like, what was that experience like? The place is a time capsule, essentially. And I wanted that transcendent experience of going somewhere where all the singers who made me want to make the album in the first place recorded their music. And it's a short drive from Nashville, but it was enough of a physical distance from the location where I had made every project previously to really immerse myself into what we were doing. Sarah, Alex, Larry, and I, and Austin got an Airbnb and stayed in Muscle Shoals. And we'd get up early, go to the studio, come home late, listen to what we were going to record the next day. Ben Tanner produced it of Alabama Shakes. And he's just like next level as far as his ideas and doing the A&R process with me. Like he listened to so much music with me before we ever recorded a lick of music. And it was, it was just a magical bucket list experience for me. And you feel the energy in the room and know the caliber of music that's come out of there. And it just, it elevates the whole experience. 
So let's look forward a little bit. On your last album, there were songs like Change the Whole Thing and Long Way to Go. It seems like you're trying to use your voice in some ways to help people figure out how to deal with the world. Um, what do you see as your role as an artist in activism, in you know changing the world, however you view that? It's all a responsibility that belongs to everybody. <clears throat> I think if you're going to be putting something out in the world, which will move people. And I think the best tool to do that and to get a message across is through music. That's my personal way of communicating the sentiments I want to get across to people. Change the whole thing was literally about activism. It was me being frustrated with what was going on in our world and saying, hey, you don't need to go outside and burn your bra or whatever it is, but maybe just one little act of repair or or goodwill will beget another and it's better than throwing your hands up in the air and saying oh well there's no use and i liked how that reached people and i don't like to be so didactic outside of the music and say hey this is how you should be doing this or that but i think with music you can package it in a way that's universal and applicable to people in more specific scenarios that pertain to that overall message it feels so satisfying to me and i don't think that you can just sing music to be pretty or make people dance i think there has to be some more substance underneath that at some point in your projects so now that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a national crisis around police violence and racism how does that affect your thinking about your music at the beginning of the lockdown, I felt like my whole life had been canceled and the rug had been pulled out from underneath. And then I think luckily I quickly recovered and realized that this is the time more now than ever that people need music and entertainment. And how lucky am I to have a whole album that I've just finished essentially and to have my bandmates in my neighborhood to where we can collaborate and make music together or even put on a little virtual concert in my backyard and we tried to bring some routine to people at home. So every Friday, they started to expect a virtual show and raise some money for the tornado relief in Nashville or money towards Music Cares. And I was starting to collaborate with a lot of my other friends who live remotely, like some friends of mine in LA were doing a quarantine festival and I met a bunch of artists virtually, albeit that way, and then started just trying to keep everyone's positivity up and, and know that there's something to look forward to. And we are going to keep releasing music because we can. But with everything going on in the political climate right now, I think there's also a responsibility to listen and not just be putting more out there just to stay visible. So even though we just helped myself out right before all the riots began, it, it's doesn't seem like the time to be promoting my single. You know, it seems like the time to be quiet on social media, especially is that necessary evil that I think you just need to be careful about when you're congesting the traffic of how people are getting their information and what are they being exposed to and trying to maybe shine the light on some of my friends who are overlooked because of their color. And they're some of the people who deserve the most attention and just being uncomfortable with examining some of those things, that's a, a responsibility I think we all should answer to. Anytime I've grown, it's been after a period of some discomfort. 
Are there particular things happening in music right now, trends or things that you are just like excited about um, for yourself or, or in the broader kind of music world? I love what's going on in the Americana world. And I feel like it kind of is pulling the jam world and what's going on in Nashville more closely together. I think that's just so exciting to me. And I, I think what we were speaking to earlier with these subgenres that are emerging and these unlikely collaborations coming together, ending up being like the mainstream is, is always really fun to watch. One thing that's hard to get really excited about is how important live music is to me and not knowing what that's going to look like for a while and just trying to figure out how to present music to people in a way that's compelling. That's really one of the whole reasons that got me in the studio for Change the Whole Thing and for this new record. So I guess that's what I'm not excited about. (laughs) Thinking about where it goes or where it doesn't go from here. Just keeping those lines of communication between all these artists open. You know, we would be going to Bonnaroo this week. And that's how I've met so many people that I work with is through these festivals, through Bourbon and Beyond, through Peach Fest. And I think all artists should try to really maybe be over communicative. And I'm excited about seeing that continue. Have there been any unexpected sort of bright sides to the kind of quarantine and uh, lockdown period for you? Yeah, I am not the most enthusiastic social media-er, let's call it a verb. (laughs) But this has been something that's really pulled me into being interactive with people. And I feel like I've unlocked a whole way of connecting with folks. It's not on some massive scale, but there are these people that I feel like I've become a lot closer to that are out there who've connected with music. I have the time to hear a lot of stories about how music of mine has resonated with people that I think I was missing before. This has slowed me down and made me appreciate that impact. I learned how to, I won't say this uh, with like the craziest confidence, but I finally learned how to play piano, which is something that I said I'd do. And I've been practicing different songs that I love. We're going to do a cover of the Live at Carnegie Hall Bill Withers album in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to bring in a bunch of my buddies around Nashville like Devin Gilfillian and and friends of mine who are black to celebrate black music and kind of just leasing out my band and I'll oversee it. But doing something like that during this time where you can safely cover that. And I did this thing that I mentioned offhand earlier with Marcus King, where he's pre-recorded a festival like four different nights. And I sang BGVs for the first night where he covered his album El Dorado. And just seeing him work and how he conducts his band has been an absolute treat. And then we did another night where we actually got to perform a song that he and I wrote for this project that's coming out. And I played it with his band. And then we covered The Last Waltz the other night. And I've done lots of Last Waltz tribute shows, but I don't know that I've ever had the time to really just like sit down and learn every harmony part for the songs and getting to really just savor different works of art and and reading and reading old classic novels. And I have a garden in my backyard now. I'm like, what? This is not, not what I thought I was going to have. That's a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Listening to Fish's new album at night. I know shade now on, on keys that got me on the piano. Amazing. It's a good album. It's a really good album. It's a happy album. We need that album right now. 
So last question, Maggie, thinking about your music career up to this point, what's the most important lesson that you've learned so far? Make the timeless music. Make music that in 20 years you're going to be able to morally stand by and, and sonically stand by and make it with people that elevate you. If that's because they have the right attitude, if that's because they're supremely talented, I think that that's how you're a career artist. And I anticipate that I'm going to be doing this for a really, really long time. But I believe that that's going to be largely due to those two things is having that barometer within yourself and and making it with the right people. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love this. You're the best. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. And everyone uh, listening, stick around for some music from Maggie. Thanks, Maggie. Thank you. Videos of all past, present, future live performances are available on the Osiris YouTube channel. Now here's Maggie performing Help Myself, Shade, and People Get Ready. I diagnosed myself with the internet. Minor aches and pains, death is imminent. Think this twitch in my eye might be permanent. You got a cure for it, need a cure for it. I buy self-help books and call it therapy. Found a quote that could calm your anxiety. If you could find the time, read it back to me. Might be the one I need, could be the one I need. You should try a hypnotist, see a guru. Gotta do this new cleanse, that shit's voodoo. Maybe we're all just out of our minds. One step away from finding dandy, bills and candy. Gotta cut straight to the happy ending. Maybe we're all just out of our heads. Despite what the experts said, I'm only here to help. I just can't help my Take it every day like it's medicine Wash it all down with the state I'm in To keep it genuine, what's that again? I'm journaling every day and meditating I've been waiting, why am I not levitating? Maybe we're all just out of our minds One step away from finding dandy Pills and candy, gotta cut straight to the happy ending Maybe we're all just out of
inside a box on a dead end street. You were there watching me, but I didn't know. I couldn't see. I got lost. Sleep inside a fantasy. Love your hair in the mornings, you know. You love to run wild and let the mane flow. You ran away, but we'll meet again soon. South of the border, over the moon. When you're gone, it just never feels right. Gets so cold in the dark at the night, but I only like the shade when you're blocking the light. Only like the shade when you're blocking the light. I put the ring back where it belongs. It feels right. You were waiting up all night. I didn't know. Be there anyway. I figured out what you whispered that night. Somewhere the mountains hit the clouds just right. Somewhere we're dancing and we're singing a tune. South of the border and over the moon. When you're gone, it just doesn't feel right. Gets so cold in the dark at the night. But I only like the shade when you're blocking the light. Only like the shade when you're blocking the light. Only like the shade.
Thanks for joining us. Past, Present, Future Live is hosted and produced by RJB. The executive producers are Adam Kaplan and Kirsten Cluthy. Production, editing, mixing, and original theme music by Brad Stratton. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. Please visit OsirisPod.com to find more content and deepen your connection to the music you love. 